0: That moment where you get to you get to see these people breathe and you get to see that uh, that there's a just a connection that carries everything and makes those hard decisions harder. But it's important to do that.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, the questions of am I my brother's keeper and at what cost are explored in director Charles Murray's thriller, The Devil You Know. The film tells the story of Marcus, who after a lifetime of trouble, is trying to turn his life around with the support of his loving family. When he discovers that one of his brothers may have been involved in a horrific crime, Marcus grapples with the limits of brotherhood and loyalty as he finds himself in the crosshairs of a seasoned but jaded detective. In addition to The Devil You Know, Mr. Murray's directorial credits include the feature films A Cold Hard Truth, The Summoning, and Things Never Said, and an episode of Sons of Anarchy. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Murray shares insight into the making of The Devil You Know with fellow director Matthew Cherry. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: What's going on, guys? How y'all doing? Great movie, right? So me and Charles, we, we go way back, so this is probably going to be more like a conversation as opposed to a q and I don't know if it's uh, us sitting in front of Arclight or at the grill, the veggie grill. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, uh, one of the things that uh, we had a quick uh, get up a few minutes before this. And, um, you know, one of the things I love about your work is just you're one of the few directors today that I truly feel like are really making it a point to show these complex depictions of black men, obviously. But but not only just in the, the drama space, you know. The love story, you know, the the family dynamics. It's, it's just you're really catching it in all different ways. And I wanted to ask you just um, what makes you, outside of the obvious, <laughs> what makes that an important um,
0: aspect of your work? Because it's what I grew up in. Wait, but before we get to that, though. Okay. I just need to say this. <laughs> um, we made our first films within a year of each other. Yep. And Matt was so so supportive of me making things never said. And it was like, uh, and he, he has a wonderful film called the last fall. And the one thing about Matt that I, I admire is his work ethic and, and his stick to itiveness. He was like, you know, everybody was talking about Sean Baker, um, uh, making tangerine. And his brother was over out and about making, uh, an iTunes, uh, iTunes, iPhone movie called Nine Rides, which is an awesome movie. And so hearing him say that means a lot to me because I think we are kind of trying to do the same thing. For sure. You know, and it's just offer a a three-dimensionality to black men because of the lanes that we keep getting put into, unfortunately when it comes to what they say will make money, right. you know? And it's, and it's, <clears throat> it's much more broader and, and a much more livable space in television to a degree. But, you know, if we're not singing and dancing, if we're not cracking jokes, if we're not running scared, or if we're not selling dope, or if we're not in the middle of some poverty porn story, middle-class black men kind of don't exist as leads or uh, in in a space somewhere near that unless they're the best friends of or unless sisters, are, you know, uh, black women are the best friends of. And so for me, you know, part of the trade-off on doing smaller films, first one being 300 grand, second one being 280, this one being, you know, two 2 mil, I feel like if you're going to, get behind me, you have to get behind what I understand and that's that middle class life. That's yep. that, you know, blue collar or upper blue collar to middle class life.
2: No, I love that. Um, you know, and, and that's a good point about, you know, this industry obviously things change every day. It's like by the time you think of an idea and put it out into a theater or a stream or, you know, three other trends have changed and now they're looking for the next thing. How do you particularly with a story like this that felt really personal, and I'll let you elaborate on that. You know, how do you kind of ignore the noise and kind of figure out what your next project is going to be? Because I'm really curious how you came to this idea of telling this story about this, uh, this I this, uh, almost said trio, this, uh, what is it, a, a quadruple of brothers? <laughs> a
0: four-quadrant, a full-on foolish mess. <laughs> uh, well, the, the interesting thing about Things Never Said and, you know, hashtag truth, which is now a cold, hard truth and this, is what you're saying about times changing, these kind of movies aren't on that radar mm-hmm. of change. Yeah. You know, like if I was trying to make something like, you know, to use as an example, perfect guy. Michael Ely's like mm-hmm. thriller which you know it's like hey Dennis Quaid did suspect and now y'all black folks y'all take it right. you know um, <clears throat> so those films are on that cycle of is it in is it not right. the movies that we made as independents they're never on that cycle they're never even in the conversation mm-hmm. so once I decide that I want to try to make something like that I'm not Caring about whether somebody's going to say it's on the cycle or not, or it's it's in in demand or not, because they're constantly telling us that it's not in demand. Right. And and as far as the story, you know, I come from family of five. My sister was the oldest, and then there were, you know, uh, four brothers, mm-hmm. and they were so much older than me that I was able to kind of watch that foursome in an almost, like, from a proscenium arch kind of thing. Right. And that allowed me, you know, somebody who decided at nine who wanted to be a storyteller, it was like, well, if it's right what you know, it's like, here's my family. And so I just kind of keep using them for free.
2: (laughs) Which is a great way to uh,
0: keep costs low
2: because <laughs> hopefully they're not uh, trying to have you come back and uh, oh, pay no, them I, for the rights. <laughs> no, I'll buy them something. Right. So, you know, you being a writer director, you know, I'm really curious about your process when it comes to putting a story down because, you know, I know some people, they have this process where it takes some years to put a story down. I know you also work in television. So when you kind of, I know like you do it takes a lot of momentum to push a story forward, right? Because, yep. you know, you're thinking of all these different ideas, kind of, what's the next thing I can do? Like, what's that thing that makes you feel like, all right, this was the story that I need to tell now? And
0: in the writing process, at least, how quick did it take you to put this down? Coming in to the business as an older guy mm-hmm. meant that I had storage. You know, there were a bunch of stories where, I, you know, I'd see a movie and I'd be inspired by it. The verdict, for example, like I'm a huge Sidney Lumet fan. If you if you really take a good look at this movie, Lumet's all over it, you know. Uh, So if Prince of the City or Dog Day Afternoon or Mm -hmm. Serpico, Twelve Angry Men, you know, then I'm a big Kurosawa fan. And so since I've done that 10,000 hours, I was let's say I did the 10,000 hours by the time I was 25. Right. I didn't get into business until I was 36. You know, so in that ten years, it's like, man, if I had a chance, I'd tell a story like this, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Things never said was written in two thousand three. I didn't get to shoot it till two thousand eleven. So it's almost like I'm, I'm just going into my bank, my memory mm-hmm. bank, and going, yeah, you know what? I always wanted to tell this, and I always wanted to tell that. So they all have been percolating yep. in some way. Um, I pitched this to. Omar Epps in 2014. Mm -hmm. But I had been living with the idea of telling the story about uh, a family where someone has to decide whether they're going to tell the truth on another family member. I've been living with that for like 20 plus years. Wow. And when I finally decided to revisit it, that was the thing that, the only thing that that was different from the other things that I wrote is I don't think about actors when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. But that was the first time I thought oh, you know what, if I could get Omar Epps, he would be really good for this. And so once I'm charged to, like, start writing something, my process is kind of weird because I kind of, like, keep spinning the story over and over and over mm-hmm. in my head. And I kind of tell people, you, you've seen right. this. You know, <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm thinking about this. And then, like, I keep coming back to different people until it's like, oh, that's kind of fully formed. Yep. Um, and now I can start on it. You know, and I'm not precious about first drafts because I know that they're going to the one thing that TV wrote taught me was you're going to be writing this thing over and over again. And so you got to dive in. So if you know you have to dive in and go at it again and again and again, don't be scared to push out a first draft. So once I push out that first draft, then the real work begins. Got you. Got you. Um, so one of the things that
2: sometimes I struggle with, um, cause I didn't have like the traditional, um, kind of writer, director, film school background. Sometimes it's like giving characters unique voices mm-hmm. and the characters in this movie, you know, they were all, they all felt, it felt so authentic. They all felt so fully formed. Right. Um, so are you pulling from like real life kind of archetypes of people that you may have met kind of throughout your years? Like what, what makes you able to create such unique characters, which all have such unique voices? Like, I loved how each brother kind of, once you saw, like, the first kind of five or ten minutes, you kind of knew if they were in a situation, like, this is how they would attack each situation. Um, How do you work so well with characters and giving them a unique voice?
0: Um, I don't feel like the process ends with whatever the final draft is. Mm. The process continues when you cast someone. It's true. And, um, you know, Hitchcock said that you as a director are the first audience member. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you, <clears throat> what you have to give over as a director is as you're seeing the personality of the actor, you're seeing how that person is taking over the character. Mm-hmm. And if they're, in, if they're in line with kind of how you envision it, mm-hmm. you let them roll. And then when you sit next to the camera when you're sitting in Video Village and you're watching them, you're like literally seeing this char- character for the first time. Mm-hmm. Not when you did all the drafts, not when you cast them and did the auditions, but as they're doing it. And then you're, I think your biggest job as a director is to shape the larger story right. as they are shaping the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know uh Curtis Cook who plays the older brother who really doesn't have that that many lines or that much to do what I talked to him about was when you're the oldest my oldest child uh Amel I was sitting across from her now and she's 20 now they're 20 now sorry and they were laying out some some stuff that was kind of confusing to them and Literally, they did a move that I do. And I went, oh, my God, I haven't, I've never paid attention to that, that there's a mimicry involved in parenting. So when I sat and talked to Curtis, I said, you're the first. You've been there for like three years before whoever came next. Daddy means a lot to you. Mama does too, but daddy's like your God follow your father's patterns. Mm. And so if you watch the movie, Glenn will look a certain way. Curtis will look a certain way, you know? And so it was just that, it was that experimental push to try to make sure that everybody has, you know, so the third kid is going to be the the three people or four people before (laughs) them. You know, and so, But then what it comes down to is, what are your wants? Right. Once I decide what a character's wants are, then I think there's the conflict. And, there, and, and all of them could think that they want the same thing, but the conflict is going to resolve itself or is going to lay itself out differently to them because of who they are and their personalities, right. which are different.
2: Right. Got you, got you. Love that. Um, and speaking about Omar... Um, as well, I uh, wanted to ask you about the casting process, right? So, you know, when you're doing a movie at a certain price, <laughs> right. obviously sometimes you have these grand ideas of kind of who you want to try to be a part of your flick, and oftentimes that comes with, like, this hard conversation, knowing that I may not be able to get you the money that you're used to getting right. on these big kind of studio movies. Like, could you walk us through kind of what a conversation was like to um, get Omar in the mix and then also talk about the rest of getting your cast assembled?
0: Again, it's it comes down to... As you know, how I love reading film history. Right. And all of the people who come before me kind of help me realize that what I'm going through isn't unique in a way that can be debilitating. And the one thing that Cassavetes, (laughs) uh, again, you know, uh, early Lumet when he was doing television, Frankenheimer when they were doing television, the the roles that they were offering to Redford Newman and and people of that ilk were like, I know how the town sees you. Mm -hmm. This is different. Mm -hmm. And, and so everyone who read the script, you know, I'll skip Omar and I'll go to Ely. You know, the roles that Ely gets, he's the beautiful, you know, debonair, (laughs) savoir faire dude. And I went, the cop, I want you to read, uh, read the cop role and actually we were talking about another project mm. and he was like so what are you getting ready to do and i was like i'm i'm getting ready to direct this movie and i got a role that actually you should take a look at and and in, when he read it the first thing he did when he called me back was like say thank you because everybody else would have wanted me to do the main role or the bad brother so right. to you know so to speak and he and he said what made you offer me this role? And I said, because I think you're an actor, Mm. front to back. There we go. You know, so with what I, again, going back to your first question, I feel like I write stuff that we know exists Mm -hmm. and not a lot of people get to do. And so as my TV credits have grown and as the independent film credits have grown, There are people that that the the actors that I talked ask can call and say, hey, how is it working with this dude? And it kind of lends itself to them going, this is something that I'll step outside of the box for.
2: Got you, got you. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're in a scene, you're working with somebody who you've been a fan of, you know, for years kind of coming up and you have an adjustment in your head <laughs> that you want them to do but you're not quite sure how to mm-hmm. get that to them mm-hmm. can you walk me through that process of like giving an actor adjustment if you may um we're
0: partners i don't have a lot of ego when it comes to creating and and what i mean by that and this is you know not being disparaging toward um filmmakers writers and everybody else but more about the business. This business tries to make you feel like you have to act a certain way to be a certain thing. Yep. A producer does this. Mm-hmm. director does this. And so a lot of people get caught up in playing the role instead of doing the thing. For me, it is all exploratory. And so if I'm talking to an actor... I'm not going to just say, hey, I need you to do this. I'm going to explain it. There you go. You know, I'm going to say, hey, and, and, and another thing that I've learned, and I learned this from television, is if we're doing scene six in the first act, I'm going to literally be able to say, your first scene, you were here emotionally. This is your fourth scene, so you kind of need to be here on your arc. Because by the time we get to the third act, you're going to be here. And when you talk to actors like that, as opposed to, hey, man, you know, I need you to pick up that cup this way. And then I turn to the DP and go, this is going to be great. You know, they feel left out. Right. You know, and my thing is just don't leave anybody out, you know, uh, and have open conversations about where you feel all of this falls on the emotional spectrum.
2: Love that. Love that. Um, I also want to ask you a little bit about the way you place the camera in the scene. So when you're got your script, know you're getting ready to shoot, you're in pre-production. How do you approach like building out the scene in terms of shots? Like I know there people have different ways of doing it. Some people like to be very organic on the day. And I know sometimes when you're working in an independent film, you may not even be able to get into the location. <laughs> you have to figure it out kind of the day of or right. the week before. Um, you know, how important is it, you know, that composition and kind of setting the camera? And
0: how does that assist you in telling the, your story? It's It's interesting because we all watch these movies that cost a lot. Right. And I believe in our heads, you know, like... It's a one plus one equals two thing. Mm -hmm. So the movie is one, how we're perceiving it is one, and then the experience is two. So a lot of times we live in a post-MTV, present-day YouTube, get the message across, you know, cut, 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 or do something really willy-nilly, right? right? (laughs) And I'm a 70s baby. I love another filmmaker that I just left out, Alan Pakula. Mm. And when you watch Clute or when you watch All the President's Men, like people are kind (laughs) of lingering. And then somebody will come into the frame and they'll say something and then they'll be like, oh, what did you say? And then it, you know, and and so for this, I kind of wanted to live in the, how often do we just sit back and watch Black folks be black folks, mm. you know? Um, my ex-wife called me after she saw the film, and she's the kind of person who will go online and read all of the reviews, mm-hmm. and, and then recite the reviews to me. Like, I don't know why they thought that this was dumb. <laughs> and I'm like, call them, you know? Uh, but she, she said, you know, I thought one re- re- review was interesting, this dude was kind of like picking the film apart. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, he didn't do anything special with the camera. He didn't do anything special with the production design. He didn't do anything special with the actors. You know, it just felt like they were just kind of going about their day. And I was like, that's the special that you missed out on Mm -hmm. because you think a story like this needs the Hype Williams and Belly where everybody's coming down. And however, do you want it is playing and it's all blue. And, you know, but we don't get to see all of the hugging that went on in this movie. We don't get to see people like taking their time to sit down. We don't get to see a father that everybody actually like looks to. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I had one screening and someone came up to me and said, you know, the scene where the father's sitting at the table. After his heart attack and the mom comes out and she's on the phone and they kind of have that little lovey-dovey moment before she turns on the mm-hmm. phone, turns on the radio. And they, they were like, you, do, you don't really need that scene. And I said, you, you think so? <laughs> and I said, well, I didn't need a cumulative 18 minutes of Kevin Bacon picking up his phone in Mystic River with a wife who wouldn't say anything. And yet it added to his character. I know that the narrative in the town when Jeremy Renner says, we got to make sure that she didn't see us, it's a false narrative. Because she had on a mask and she was blindfolded. But from that came that relationship between Rebecca Hall and Ben Affleck. And I said, I didn't need that either. (laughs) Yet it gave me something to hold on to you get to see these kind of parents have this moment all the time we don't right so in my camera work and and stuff like like that because both of us being midwestern kids there's a pace right and so i wanted to emulate that pace love that love that
2: and that that actually flows really nicely into my next question i wanted to ask you was just um you know black love man like you know it's interesting, like it feels like in times we live in a place where in a lot of t- television shows and movies, like you know, you don't really see a lot of in- intimacy um, mm-hmm. between black couples, right? You know, it's, it's, it's like an extreme, it's like either nothing or it's like all the way <laughs> to the right, right, right? Um, you know, how important is it to, for you to showcase black love in your work? Because, like you mentioned, you know, there, there are moments where I could see an exec looking at your film and being like, eh, Do we need that moment? Do right. we need a love story with Omar? Right. You know what I mean? But yeah. And it still accentuates and kind of moves the story forward in a way that just feels so complete and it feels so real and natural. Right. Um, I meant to ask you just about that because that's like a theme that I've seen in a lot of your work as well. Um, and not a lot of people are focusing
0: on that, so. I love Black Love. There we go. <laughs> you know You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like when I think of the movies that I absolutely adore, like Singing in the Rain is one of my favorite movies. And when when Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and and, De- and Debbie are doing Good Morning, that's a love scene to me, mm. you know, because they're all coming together. Mm-hmm. And again, something we don't see, Right. you know, like, or we see it in stormy weather, but it'll always kind of be jokey-jokey, right. right? And people don't think about, like, you know, uh, To Sleep With Anger has a big impact on me. Uh, uh, Gordon Parks' first movie, Learning Tree, has a big impact on me. And here's the crazy thing that is completely out of place, but it makes sense in terms of your question. That scene in Superfly when Priest is sitting in the tub with Sheila Mm Frazier and deciding to get out of the business, just the gentle way that they're talking to each other is absolutely amazing to me. So when he When she says the I love you thing and he walks out of the room and then he comes back with the key and says, nobody has the key to my house but my family and I want you to have it. And they have that moment and then she says, well, I guess that means we're going dancing again. He goes, no, no, we ain't. That existed in my house. I've seen that with you and your missus. I've seen that with a lot of black folks and we just never see it. So it's like I don't. Here's the beauty of film. Citizen Kane comes out, 1941, William Randolph Hearst goes on an attack, he shuts the film down, he thinks that he ruins Orson Welles's career, and then it bounces back in 1990. There's going to be somebody who is, was our age when we decided we wanted to make film that might see that moment and want to protect that when they are making films, and that's what's important about it. Oh, man, love that so much. Um probably
2: one of the last few questions i wanted to ask you too was just um you know obviously pacing in this movie is so important right mm-hmm. you know different filmmaker may have given this you know totally completely different pace they right. accentuated a lot more of the action um kind of how did you come to the pace of your film um because it felt like it had a lot of quiet moments that really kind of let you kind of sit with the characters mm-hmm. um, and then also you had a lot of action sequences as well where right. you know people were getting into it um, just had a question about that in terms of your pacing and uh, your editing the crime part
0: of this the movie is actually the Trojan horse mm. <laughs> because I wanted to sneak in all of the family stuff Yep. and so you know tonally it kind of has a push pull but that's kind of how most families I know are, you know? And so, and you know, this is regardless of color. Mm -hmm. It's just one, my my favorite YouTube video is is the Thanksgiving dinner where the kid can't play with his Atari or PlayStation Mm -hmm. or something like that. And he turns over the whole table (laughs) and everybody goes spastic. I'm sure that they also sat around a thanksgiving before or a holiday before and like we're a really close family. Right. And and you have to have that intro um introspection is that the word? Let's go with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that 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 moment where you get to you get to see these people breathe and you get to see that uh that there's a just a connection that carries Everything and makes those hard decis- decisions harder. Yep. But it's important to do that. Got you. And then um, last question
2: I want to ask you is, um, you know, having made three movies now, you know, they've all kind of been done at a price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've kind of found myself kind of coming after Hair Love, like kind of feeling like, all right, man, now I want to try to, you know, get the big studio joint. I want to try to do something bigger. Um, but after going through that process, I've kind of resettled and kind of more like, hey, you know what? I think I need to just stick to what got me here kind of in the first place. Like, for your next film, like, do you see yourself trying to go bigger or do you kind of see yourself living in this space for the next film or the next films that kind of
0: come after? Uh, This, I might be misquoting John Carpenter, but he said at one time, when people get big budgets, they go nuts. (laughs) And I live according to the word of Jason Blum. And when he talked about coming off of the movie that he was on and going off and doing a $60 million movie, he said, that's what everyone tells you to do. And I'll never do it again. Mm. And I just feel like trying to tell these types of stories, I'm going to have to be good with living in a budget. Right. And I'm, and I'm good with that because Lionsgate was so amazing uh, in letting us make the movie that we wanted. I wanted to make, we wanted to make, and that's what's more important, you know. I mean, I'm not even going to say Kevin Feige and call me, but Kevin Feige called me, and I'll go do that one. But when it's time to, you know, when it's time to make the movies uh, that kind of have lived in my heart and in my head do the right thing was 5 million bucks
2: right. right got you man well I want to thank you all for coming out thank you Charles an uh, amazing person and I hope you guys really enjoyed the film
0: thank you thank you
1: thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A if you'd like to hear more The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts and please share subscribe rate and review we'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.